This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's been a few weeks, and I'm glad to be back in the swing of things, releasing new episodes for you. My guest this week is Bethany Sparkle. In this conversation, we talk about her experience being homeschooled, leaving religion, social work, James Dobson, making difficult decisions regarding family relationships, and the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Also, I want to mention there is a trigger warning and content warning for discussion of sexual assault in this conversation as well. We recorded this conversation in December, so some of our chat references the holidays. However, with the recent discussion around exposed Christian schools and exposed Christian homeschooling on Twitter, I'm glad that it's coming out now. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain, follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash exvangelical. You can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod or by leaving a review and star rating on Apple Podcasts. All right, let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Bethany Sparkle. I know them through Twitter primarily, that's how we met, and I am super excited to have them on the show and talk to them about their life a little bit. Welcome to the show, Bethany. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you for coming on. Um, we are actually part of a, a great sort of ongoing conversation on Twitter. Um, and I'm excited to just learn a bit more about you because we we haven't had this sort of one-on-one. On, one on one. We're in like an ongoing group conversation and it's great to, to just have this one-on-one -on -one with you. So let's learn a little bit about you and sort of where you grew up and what's your first exposure to religion and everything else was early on in life. And let's just start there. Sure. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Washington state, still here. Um, born in Seattle. Now I live like an hour North of Seattle, so I didn't get very far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, I was in church pretty much the week after I was born. Um, yeah. <laughs> my, <laughs> far as I know, I, I think that was about as long as my parents waited. Um, they met in a church in Seattle that is now kind of a mega church. But um, when they were going there, it was just a single, a single church. It was also called Bethany, but they insist that I was not named for the church. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so yeah, so there was no point in my life in which religion was not a prominent part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in church every Sunday, every Wednesday. I don't know when the doors were open. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then my mother also homeschooled us. So it was uh, like church was pretty much the only social outlet as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We were sort of like very mainstream evangelical. We weren't, uh, I mean, whatever that means. We weren't, um, we weren't super fundamentalist there. There wasn't, um, I didn't have much in the way of dress code or anything. I mean, 
basic purity culture stuff, but I wasn't required to wear skirts or anything like that, mm-hmm. even to church. Um, and yeah, I guess I feel like a lot of the stories that I hear the churches I grew up in were like more watered down version of the same toxic bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, though you, you did have the added element you mentioned just now of, of homeschooling. Um, that is something that, that I, that is not part of my, my story, but I, through these conversations and observing other conversations on Twitter and everything, I've learned some of the things as far as like different curriculums and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, was, and I know that some of the more recognizable ones were things like a Becca, uh, curricula and, and others. I think another one was called ACE. Is that right? Um, Mm -hmm. um, how did that experience through homeschooling and what the, I guess just primarily the, uh, the material that you were given to study, what was that like? And how was your experience (laughs) of that personally? Um, Well, my mom decided to homeschool us, um, and dad sort of agreed. Um, I think primarily to protect us from the evil public school system and keep us from being brainwashed, which clearly worked out super well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) there was not a lot of concern for education in there, um, my mom actually comes from a pretty like upper middle class family. Her family is has money and they're all educated and they all have degrees except for my mom who never finished college, but apparently was smart and good at college when she was there. Um, and my dad doesn't really come from that background. His is a lot more blue collar. But um, so she did grow up with education being a big deal. And my mom's family was very concerned consistently <laughs> as to the lack of education that we were receiving. You know, we, uh, I, I can't tell you a lot about the specific curriculum that we received because honestly, my memories of my childhood are pretty vague mm-hmm. if they're at all. Um, but I know that we did, we had a Becca math. I remember that. Um, and at some point, like when I was older, I have two younger brothers when I was older and my brother's, like probably by high school. My brothers were a little bit older. She moved into, um, I can't remember what the curriculum was called, but it had like an online type of thing or like it was probably, I think it was actually Mm CD-ROM. And uh, so she could just sort of like send us to do that. The biggest thing with my mom was that there wasn't, she was not a good teacher. Like my mom's an extremely smart person, but she was not a good teacher. She didn't want to teach. She taught us how to read and how to do like basic math. We were all readers. Um, I don't really remember her teaching us anything past that point. Um, I think it was mostly just sort of like handing us books and being like, go do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, our science books were mostly here's 27 reasons in order of why evolution is a lie. Um, and I think that sometimes there were things that were like, you know, dissect a frog or something like that. And they would send the frog for how to do that. And mom would always be like, I have to do that. <laughs> so like anything, that, <laughs> yeah, anything that required her to actually like be more involved was like not something that we did. Um, the only like really specific memories I have of school were when I hit high school. I really... 
I think I probably would have been okay with math if I had had a good teacher. My mom's actually really good at math. She's just bad at teaching it. Um, but I have more or less worked out at this point in my life that I never really nailed fractions. <laughs> um, and so once yeah, I got... I am positive you're not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> but once I got to algebra, um, things made a rapid decline <laughs> um, because it turns out you need fractions for algebra. Um, so mostly I remember like every single day my like for I don't know how long my mom like screaming at the kitchen table and being like, why are you pretending to be stupid? Cause I know you get this and me crying. Mm. So that was not great. And I still get a little bit of PTSD is probably too strong of a term, but I still wince a little bit at like, I don't know, formulas and shit. I don't really remember doing much in the way of school when I actually did get to college at some point, I had never written a paper. I had never, like I had never done any of the, like normal school stuff. Mm-hmm. Within that context, also of being homeschooled, what was your sort of media consumption? Was it was it sort of policed or monitored closely, or did you, since you were readers and everything, were you allowed to sort of express your curiosity in that way? Okay, my parents were weird about this. I growing up, I didn't. Like, my parents were pretty abusive people mentally and emotionally, but I didn't really know that. And part of the reason that I didn't know that was because compared to a lot of the people I grew up with, they seemed less crazy. Um, And that's a low bar. But, but, you know, we read Harry Potter. My family loved Harry Potter, Mm -hmm. um, which I feel like is, like, the easiest go-to as to, like, what was different. Um, My parents liked fantasy a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. They... You know, I mean, like, they they weren't really into, like, the idea of Satan. And, I mean, they believe Satan existed, of course. That's a right. requirement. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't, uh, they didn't talk about him as, like, you know, being, as a, being in danger of Satan or demons or anything like that. Um, certainly our reading and watching was policed. Um, like, I didn't. I couldn't read anything that my mom hadn't read first until I was probably 12 or 13. Um, and we didn't own a TV until I was nine or 10. And then it was just for movies. Um, and that was, I didn't watch my first R-rated movie until I was 17, but, um, but it's still, you know, I had a lot of friends who like weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs or, uh, I'm trying to think of other examples, gummy bears right. for some reason sticks out because <laughs> they were supposed to be like some sort of satanic element to these things. And my parents thought, that how was are so- they bouncing here and there and everywhere? Right. It's not exactly. Who knows? <laughs> um, and my parents thought that was so like, they didn't, they didn't think it was bad. They didn't think it was toxic or like problematic, but they just thought it was silly. Yeah. Um, I think there's sort of class element to it in some ways. Um, but they, but I wasn't allowed to watch care bears because it was too politically correct. And, <laughs> <Okay>. that, <laughs> and that was really the big difference is that my parents weren't concerned about Satan, but they were very concerned about liberals. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so my media was extremely, poli- my father listened to Rush Limbaugh every fucking day of my life. Oh, that's right. As, rela- as I know, he's still that. That is relatable. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, So I, as far as I know, I was probably a lot more influenced by like what was politically correct. And that just got tied into being part of religion. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a good question too. Did, what did politics sort of enter into your family life too? It seems like with, with the mention of Rush, I mean, I know that, uh, Rush has influence, um, that I I don't. (laughs) That I think, you know, if you do want to talk about filter bubbles, like, I don't think people realize how influential that man has been on a generation of other men. (laughs) No, I don't think so at all. Um, My dad just liked conservative talk radio in general, but he did particularly love Rush Limbaugh, which is so weird to me because my dad would never talk like Rush Limbaugh talks. Like, my dad is an asshole um, in a lot of ways, but he's like a polite asshole. (laughs) (laughs) he's passive aggressive he would never be aggressive like that um and i had never heard rush limbaugh when i was a kid i just knew that dad listens to him Mm -hmm. he drove he drove for fedex grounds um he was on the road for like 10 12 hour days um and i actually really specifically remember i was like 10 or 11 and we were on a family vacation and um, we were staying in this like cabin on the beach in Oregon and, uh, us kids were, got to sleep in like a loft and it had like a, you know, you could see down into the living room and my parents were watching television and I was, um, sitting at the edge of the loft watching the television because I was obsessed with TV and movies. Not much has changed there. Um, and, <laughs> and they watched, they were what Rush Limbaugh was on this TV and my dad was watching him and I sat there and I watched this man for like 30 minutes or and I was horrified (laughs) and I was like who is this man and the next day I was just like dad I I I watched Rush Limbaugh when you guys were watching it last night and he was like oh yeah and I was like I I think he's really mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he tried to explain to me that he wasn't really like that, but it was just like a radio persona. And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, that does not make sense. Yeah. I listened to Michael Medved. So I did listen to conservative talk radio, but Medved was a little less. I mean, he was also an asshole, but he was like slightly less of one. Mm-hmm. And to his very low bar credits, he doesn't support Trump. So. Well, there you go, you know. I guess. Uh, but no, politics were a big deal. My dad really likes politics. Um, mm-hmm. Consider, I think he thinks of it all as just like exciting chess pieces to move around. But um, so, yeah, I don't remember any time. I, I have a specific memory of when Clinton first got elected and my mom telling me that Clinton was going to undo all of the pro-life movement that we'd made. He was just going to start killing babies Mm. Um, yeah, those evil, and, I mean, those evil Clintons. That's that's what they do. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, when the like, you know, they were taking me to pro life marches and stuff before I could talk. Mm. Um, my, I mean, the day that Obama won election, I was at work and my mom called me um, very upset because and told me that she believed that God was judging America. Mm. I didn't really know how to respond to that. <laughs> you know, by then I was in my 20s, obviously. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so yeah, there was no point at which politics was not very clearly a part of our day-to-day lives and where it wasn't very, very clear 
that conservative politics part of being a Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was great. (laughs) So what, (laughs) so what's, what's sort of next for you after that? Um, You have this experience of being homeschooled. Were you homeschooled all the way through high school? Is that, Uh, basically my mom, um, my high school years were not great. Um, I, I had a lot of depression and anxiety. And like I said, my, my mom in particular was actually pretty abusive in a lot of ways. And so high school in particular was a lot of like verbal abuse and screaming every day. Didn't go well. A lot of boyfriends, a lot of stuff. Um, so I think by like she got kind of fed up with me um and she tossed me into washington state has a program called running start which essentially i think a lot of states have similar things um it basically allows you to if you're under a certain age you can take your last two years of high school as your first two years at community college Mm. um and it's free uh so she sort of threw me at that um and i did that for a couple of quarters um, and then I turned 18 and a few months later they kicked me out of the house. So, uh, mm-hmm. and then I, so I had to work and, you know, live. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but yeah, up until then I was homeschooled all over here. Mm-hmm. And throughout this, throughout this whole sort of experience of being homeschooled and being in church a lot, how, how had you sort of, I internalized these things and, and like, using that those sort of evangelical terms of like your relationship with God, like how you understood God at the time. Uh, what was, what was that like sort of in your head? And, and as you, as you got older and as you got to this sort of point that, that is very traumatic and, and you know, dramatic of being, you know, kicked out of your house and made to, to live on your own, like all these things happening through that up to this point in your life, what was the idea of God like uh, for you, like lived out in in your head? You know, I he was just oxygen. You couldn't get away. Like mm, mm-hmm. it wasn't something I I thought about a lot. I think um, I don't know. I think about Jonah a lot. <laughs> When I think about it now, Uh, (laughs) trying to run away and can't, right? you can't (laughs) run. And so there was this like, very, like, I always made friends with people I wasn't supposed to make friends with. And there were a lot of good reasons for that. Um, you know, when you're a teenage girl in an evangelical church or female bodied person in an evangelical church who is having sex with boys or screwing around with boys and who is cutting themselves and is like doing all of these things. There's a lot of like, like you're the bad kid. It's not like they treat you great. And mostly pastors just told me that I wasn't respecting my parents enough and I needed to do better and God would take care of it if I did better. So, so I tended to make friends with people outside of the church who didn't believe in God um, because they were nicer to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and which drove my parents crazy. Um, and they constantly yelled at me about my friends being bad people. Um, but 
but I never considered in my memory, at least, I don't remember ever considering the possibility that God didn't exist or that Christianity as I was taught it could have been in any way incorrect. Um, it just, it functionally didn't seem possible. Like there was nothing else. There had never been anything else. Mm-hmm. And if, and like, it's a big, you know, they keep telling you like, you know, what if you're wrong straight to hell? Like, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I was already fucked up in a lot of ways and all of these things. I don't know. I didn't want to go to hell. So I think that God seemed like a fairly distant and kind of abusive father figure who I could never actually make happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I didn't have a choice because I couldn't get rid of him. So I just had to keep trying. Mm-hmm. So. And when you, when you found your, when you were on your own, at 18, did you still like sort of pursue that sort of churchy stuff or was it just like, okay, I'm done with this now? Oh God, I wish. Um, no, uh, (laughs) (laughs) God, that would have saved me so many years of my life. No, um, my, uh, my folks kicked me out at 18 pretty abruptly. My mom had kind of a, I didn't do the dishes one morning and I came home and my mom informed me that I had used my ninth life and she wanted me out of the house by Saturday. Um, so I, I ended up on my own pretty abruptly. And I think if it hadn't been for my brothers, I might've cut off my parents then. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know what I would have done without them because they did sort of financially step in when necessary a few times. Um, but no, still, I went to church periodically. I had back and forth phases when I was like 20 or 21, I had the first time I can remember having like the first time I can ever remember getting angry with God, like actively angry Mm -hmm. that, um, I was, I was in church and I went to a church called the gathering that doesn't, I don't think it exists anymore around here, but it was a sister church to Mars Hill. Oh yeah. Great endorsement. (laughs) Super awesome. Solid, solid Uh, endorsement. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. I used to listen to a lot of Mark Driscoll sermons around this time, too. So um, I was making excellent life choices. Um, (laughs) I've been there. I've done that. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so I went to Mars Hill. And um, at some point, you know, it was one of those things, much like Mars Hill, the worship band was all like, you know, hip, cool musicians, many of whom wrote their own songs and all this stuff. And one of them had, um, I can't remember what his name was. He had some random thing happen where they were like playing in the park and someone like threw like a discus or something and it like hit his head, but it like glanced off. He had to get stitches. It's like a whole thing. Um, and the doctor said if this had hit you like slightly differently, it would have, um, killed you. And so he wrote a song about this event. I don't remember most of the song, except that the chorus was just like, thank you, God, for saving me. Like, that was basically what it was. Um, And I remember the first time that he played this song, that they played this song in church. And they played it many times after. And I remember I was sitting there and I was singing along and all of a sudden, I just, it was like a wall. It just hit me like out of nowhere. I was like, okay, but like he didn't. He didn't save me from 
anything. Um, because I had been sexually assaulted as a kid and I had actually been sexually assaulted more times than that. I just hadn't worked through that. That was what had happened to me in high school. Um, and I was just like, okay, but God doesn't protect you from anything. And if I walked out the door right now and walked down the street and somebody grabbed me, nothing would stop that. God would not stop that. And I was so angry. (laughs) Um, And I just sat down and like didn't sing the rest of the song. And I sort of stopped going to church for about six months. And I remember I talked to like one or two of my friends who were still Christians who had answers uh, because there isn't really an answer for that. Um, and then I went back because, again, I didn't feel like there was a choice. And part of the brainwashing, gaslighting thing is the consistent repeating that you can't, if you're mad at God, it means God exists because you can't be mad at something that doesn't exist. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so, um, that was something I'd been told a lot. So it wasn't that we made up. Um, it was more just that I accepted that there was nothing that could be done about it. And that apparently God knew more than me and no one was going to protect me, but I had kind of always known that. Mm. So, um, I just went back to church and I never sang that song. Yeah. Yeah. Was there was there a was there a point for you when you sort of consciously made a break with evangelicalism or Christianity in general, or did it or as far as where you are now in regards to everything, um, was it sort of just a gradual moving away from that sort of belief and practice? I mean, it was probably both, but there was definitely a very abrupt. Uh... <laughs> I mean, Um, yeah. (laughs) Like I can point to things that happened gradually before that, but, um, I had this one year where I basically turned my entire life upside down. Um, I quit my, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I was 28. Um, I decided I wanted to go back to school. Um, about six months before that, I had finally gone on medication for depression and anxiety. I had finally started therapy. Um, <clears throat> so I was sort of starting to figure some stuff out. And the more I figured stuff out and the more that I was in therapy, the more completely un, like untenable my relationship with my parents was becoming. Um, they didn't know I was in therapy or on medication, but just the more like remotely healthy I became, the worse things were becoming with them. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I quit my job and I decided I was going to be a social worker with my plan. And so I went to school full time and that same year, my parents and I, I had a whole thing with my dad where I told him that I wasn't going to, um, I wasn't going to be around except for holidays for a while. Um, that was in July and I showed up for holidays. Um, it was really awkward. And then my birthday, which is in March, they showed up and were terrible. (laughs) And I basically had a nervous breakdown for like a week. 
Um, and, uh, then I decided, fuck this. Uh, I wouldn't keep anyone else in my life who made me feel this way consistently, repeatedly. Um, so I'm done. I'm just not going to show up. So I just stopped showing up. They lived uh, about five to 10 minutes away from me at that point. I stopped showing up. They never came after me. They live 15 minutes from me now. It's been almost six years. Um, they still haven't come after me. Uh, so, uh, so I cut my parents off in March and was going through this whole crazy thing where I was like going to college and that was scary in some ways because I was like figuring out school, which I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do because of all of these is the homeschool thing. And I was, um, figuring out therapy and medication and I had just cut my parents out of my life and all of this stuff. And then <laughs> I was also attempting dating, which I hadn't really done a lot of in my twenties. Um, a lot of the dating in my teens was pretty dramatic. Um, and one day I was on an app on GoKC and um, I saw Eric, who's my partner now. Um, and he had checked out my profile and his profile said very clearly that he was Polly and married. And I realized that I really wanted to message him. And I wanted to look into that. And in that exact moment, I also realized that my understanding of Christianity, my comprehension of Christianity did not encompass that, mm. <laughs> like at all. Mm -hmm. And followed immediately by the realization, oh, I don't actually believe any of this. It felt a little like the uh, coyote running off the cliff, I think. <laughs> like looking oh. down and there's nothing there. <laughs> um, it was very terrifying initially. Like that first day, like I remember I messaged one of my best friends um, who had been an atheist since she was a kid. Um, I texted her that day to tell, and it was like terrifying to type the words. Like it took me like five minutes to type a message. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't tell Eric because that, you know, seems like a lot of pressure. Hi, I've just met you. Also, I've just realized I don't believe in God after looking at your profile. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, and, um, and so we met and we started dating and he didn't find out about that. He knew that I recently -ish stopped believing in God, but I think he was thinking more like a year ago. Um, and then in October, so that was June. And then in October of that year, I decided I was going to start writing a blog, which I did for a while. And so I messaged him. I was like, Hey, can you take a look at this first blog entry? Which talked about when I started, he was like, wait, that happened when you met me. <laughs> um, so that was how he found out that anyway. So there was, there was definitely a very specific, there was definitely a very specific moment. Mm. Mm, yeah, interest, interesting. Then, you know, I mean, then there was Trump several years later, and that made me a lot angrier than I had been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's good at making people angry. It's true. It's important to have a skill. <laughs> that's he doesn't his... have a lot of skills. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 his one skill that everyone can agree on. <laughs> I mean, you gotta have something, right? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I mean, yeah, that's 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 quite the you know that that's quite the revelation, and and I and for it to, I'm sure that for it to come up in the way that it did, and and um, you know, people talk about, I I, I don't know, in evangelical circles, you hear the the opposite sort of epiphany story about like believing in God, you know, yeah. but the same thing happens in the other direction. They just <laughs> like it's just not it's not really talked about. <laughs> In the well, circles. I mean, now, honestly, like once the initial shock of the ground just left me, uh, right? Yeah. So far, um, I typically describe it as feeling like I had had a gun to my head for my entire life, and then just realized it wasn't, and I could just walk away. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> that's quite a lot metaphor. of people. <laughs> I'm serious. A lot of people. No, I. I mean, I know a lot of exes really miss God and miss church. I've never had that experience. The mm. church was never a remote safe space for me. God was never an okay, <laughs> a huge relief to think that it was all okay. Mm. I think we had a delay for a second there. Um, I think we've caught up though. <laughs> can you see me? You, you can, you're, you're fine yeah. on your end. Okay. All right. Had a, I had a delay for a minute, so sorry about that. And Dumas is, uh, there he is. Well, you can't see him this time. Anyways, my dog is begging for pets. Um, I, w- I want to sort of make a hard pivot, and and I'll you know I'll probably edit this this part out just so we can do a hard pivot. But some <laughs> some of the things that you've done in the in the interim since since leaving and having and 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 coming to this this better place for yourself as far as. Um, realizing that the gun wasn't loaded and, and, um, and everything you, you still have done some things online that, that are really interesting relative to Evan, to evangelicalism. And one of those things is (laughs) you've actually been live tweeting your readings of these Dobson books, which, uh, these James Dobson books, which I'm sure that listeners to the show know who James Dobson from focus on the family is. Um, but for folks that don't have the pleasure of following you on Twitter, <laughs> tell them about about what you've been doing with this this on and off project that has led you to be blocked by James Thompson. <laughs> I worked so hard on that. I was so proud. I don't know anyone else who's been blocked by him. Um, oh, man. Even though I don't think he runs his own Twitter account. No, probably not. Uh- <laughs> He's too busy on his knees praying for, for Trump being persecuted. Yeah, by the yeah, libs. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. Uh, you know, I when I was a kid, I think like for a lot of evangelicals, um, focus on the family was pretty endemic. Um, you know, I listened to Adventures in Odyssey, and focus on the family was just such a impossible to escape brand. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly the only Dobson book I think I read growing up was Preparing for Adolescence, which is the one I'm doing now um on twitter but um i was certainly aware of other books that he did and was aware of him as sort of a constant figure um and when i got older and when i started moving out of everything so okay a couple of things one my partner eric uh is also xc but is specific. Uh, he actually grew up Seventh Day Adventist, oh, okay. uh, which is a different 
branch. No, yeah, um, I, I have talked to a handful of Seventh Day Adventists, and some of some of their particularities are extremely particular, um, and things yes. I didn't I didn't know about like until I really started talking to a, a couple of them. Um, so absolutely. absolutely. So I've learned a lot from that. Eric is also an extremely like, um, he's super smart. He's just a wonderful human being. He's also extremely meticulous um, in ways that I sometimes am not. Um, when Eric started moving away from God, he at one point sat down and the entire Bible and marked every single passage that he um, didn't think he believed anymore. Um, I was never that meticulous about anything in my entire life. <laughs> so um, when I first, like within the first year that we were together, I wanted to go back and I wanted to start reading some of the things that made the life that I lived and that made the life that a lot of us lived. Because one of the things that's incredibly frustrating, at least for me, um, about growing up evangelical is just the constant realization, often at unexpected moments, um, that literally everything you were ever taught was a lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I've thought about it a lot. I can't think of an exception. Um, and part of that has so much to do with this like specific culture that was just like being created around us and that we were constantly living in. And at the time, it really did seem, you know, like that's all we knew. That's all I knew. So I didn't think of it as something that was being like actively constructed. Um, and one of the ways that I cope with things is to take apart the construction of things <laughs> to see how they work. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started reading, I think Dotson was the first one we started reading because I was just like, okay, I know this dude had a lot of influence. I know he actually made like a really intense pitch for homeschooling, like right before I was born. Um, so although I cannot with certainty say that it's his fault that I was homeschooled, um, I feel pretty confident he had an impact. Um, and so I was like, let's read this guy. So I read Dare to Discipline, which was the first book that he wrote um, in 1969. And it was so much worse than I thought. Like, <laughs> so much worse. Um, like from the from the introduction. Like Eric and I actually got um, we got we got the 1969 version and we got the updated version from the 90s so that we could see what he changed and what he hadn't, and we read them together. Um, and it was so much worse than I thought, and I was just appalled at like how blatantly obvious it was that he was like, that he had a plan and that he was creating, like that he was politicizing childhood and politicizing the act of raising children and making that politicization a part of what it meant to be a good Christian. Give some and then he was actually quite, what are some examples of that? Well, the first one that you run into, if you read the sixties version, again, this was in 1969. It was two years after MLK was shot. Um, and he gives uh, he gives a list of why he's writing this this book. Um, and he talks about how, you know, it's so important because kids today are just, you know, running rampant, blah, blah, blah. For a man who's supposed to be a child expert, he really hates kids. Um, <laughs> and he hates everyone, but he does really seem to hate kids. Um, running rampant, blah, blah, blah. And he gives a list 
of all of the things that it is important that people um, that people read this book so that they can raise their children to not do these things. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's important to remember that Dobson actually isn't like a huge Christian. Like he is a Christian, but like he hasn't created focus on the family yet. He hasn't done any of these things. By the time he does the updated version, what he has functionally changed is that he knows he's speaking to people who just believe everything he says. Mm. Um, But like in that book, in that list, one of the things he lists like third on that list is civil disobedience. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's a major, the things that, yeah that's a that's a major uh a major thing that my six-year-old thinks a lot about is civil disobedience (laughs) sure sure i mean (laughs) i imagine it's very high on her mind um but that is one of the major things that he is concerned about and he gives he gives ongoing examples throughout the book of students doing school walkouts and all of these things and i hate him so much but he is actually pretty good at what he does um (laughs) and manages to like downplay them and make them look like spoiled brats and like all of these things and if you know what you're doing and you know what you're looking for you can take apart those stories but if you're not looking for that and if you are coming to dobson with the belief that this man is a child psychologist because he is a child psychologist he does have the degree um Mm -hmm. who is in good faith giving you this advice well it just has a different feel to it. Um, so I actually ended up doing, it, I was an undergrad at the time and I did an independent study. I went to kind of a hippie school. You got to kind of shape your own learning. Um, and I did an independent study for a quarter where I wrote a blog about dirty discipline. Mm. Wow. <laughs> uh, chapter by chapter. And, so this is, and Dobson's politicization of childhood. Um, and Eric and I have read other Christian books or whatever. And we picked up this biography of Dobson when we were, uh, I think when we were on our trip for our anniversary in June, because, you know, that's our relationship. And, um, (laughs) and I started reading it and I was just like, Oh my God, there's crazy shit in here. And so I just started tweeting it and people were weirdly receptive. Um, (laughs) And I realized that I might not be the only one, who does take a certain amount of comfort in being able to like functionally break things down piece by piece and understand why things were fucked up, not just that they were fucked up. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's very true as far as, as far as ways in which we can sort of cope and, and, uh, and, and do those and be able to reckon with what we came from and where we came from. Um, what do you, as far as, as far as that goes, are, are there other things that you like to do that with as far as deconstructing things or, or, or taking a piece of it, something that was influential in your life as a kid and reexamining it now on the other side of things in adulthood and moving beyond that particular type of lifestyle and faith? I mean, I feel like I do that with, most things uh, <laughs> <frequently>. <laughs> one of the things that i one of the things that i am that was kind of exciting over thanksgiving weekend was that i was um started a conversation that chris stroop um made a hashtag from the uh, evangelical into english yeah that was fantastic um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun Absolutely. conversation I, 
I think people were excited about it because so many of them had just left family members. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Perfect timing. But that is actually something that I'm really passionate about because I think that it's, um, I think it's hard to, I, ha- I think it's hard to underestimate or overestimate the impact that language has um, on us and specifically the impact that language has if you are raised um if you are raised specifically in this and if what you are taught is this language i actually really particularly remember um the first time i read 1984 Mm -hmm. when i was like i don't know i was in my late teens and i was really like over like really struck by specifically the language piece how they um took away words and you know made words mean other things yep um, or rather, took away meanings of words. And I didn't know why at the time, but for some reason, that particular piece of the book just really stuck with me. And more recently, there was, I think, a more um, direct comparison. There's a movie called Dogtooth. It's a Greek movie. Um, it's very, very good, although pretty heavily violent and potentially triggering. So, warning for that if anyone decides to watch it but um it's about a a couple of parents who functionally have been raising their children in this compound and have never let them out of the compound um the children aren't really children i would say they're more in their 20s by now although how much they know that is questionable um and one of there are many interesting facets of the movie but one of the things about the movie that most interested me is that part of their schooling is that every day they have to listen to language tapes that their mom makes for them. And the language tapes are like their mom being like ocean. Ocean is the blue chair in the living room. Cat. Cat is, and I can't remember what cat was, but I remember specifically that ocean was the blue chair. And the power that you take away from someone when they functionally don't have the language to describe what they are experiencing Mm -hmm. when they functionally don't have the language to ask for help or to even understand that they would need help. Um, That I think is frequently part of why it takes so many of us so long to get out because we literally don't have the words to understand Mm -hmm. what happens to us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally yeah. agree with that. I think that uh, on on that note, you know, that a, a couple of things that that come to mind. Some of the things that that I've mentioned in the Facebook group is one of the reasons why we moderate is because dehumanizing language is indicative of dehumanizing underlying beliefs, whether they're conscious or not. You know, and mm-hmm. to your point, if you don't have the language for something, then you're limited in your perception and ability to understand your own experience so so that is i am in very much in agreement with you there um and i think that 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 is definitely something that that i think when is true for so many xvs when they when they engage with the wider world that's when they realize that they didn't have the words before they didn't necessarily have the capacity and when their capacity is extended, that's when things begin to become problematic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolutely. 
lot of cognitive, <laughs> suddenly the cognitive dissonance becomes a lot more dissonant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I feel like one of the easiest things to reach for, and I know this has been true for a lot of exes, like I don't feel like I had ever heard word consent talked about growing up mm-hmm. ever in regard, <laughs> because it's not supposed to exist, right? Like the concept right. of consent is not a meaningful concept in evangelicalism regarding sexuality like yeah it's not intended to be it doesn't fit anything so like it was like it was intended that i as a female body person would understand that my job was to protect men from their baser instincts that my job was to um keep them from going too far to um, not dress in such a way that would upset them, whatever that might be. Um, but functionally what that came across, like part of the flip side of that was that like, I had a lot of trauma that I was dealing with. And when I was groomed and assaulted when I was in high school, like my understanding of that was functionally, okay, well I let him do this. Like if I hadn't, like it was my job to say to like stop him before he got to this point. But I also functionally didn't really understand that I could say no, which is definitely not what I was supposed to learn. <laughs> but um, I think had, and I've thought about that a lot because that was clearly not supposed to be the lesson. Um, I was supposed to know that I should say no always. Um, but I think there was a, I think there was a weird mix of understanding of belief that once men got to a certain point, they couldn't stop themselves and that it was my fault. Um, and like having that sort of like self-destructive impulse and also feeling like my body didn't belong to me anyway. So feeling like I didn't have a right to stop someone from doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sort of, you are not your own. I mean, that's, that teaching is so prevalent in so many different sort of subtle ways. And mm-hmm. for you to receive that messaging, for you to receive that messaging and then to not receive the messaging in regards to consent. I mean, it just leads to so much pain. And I'm sorry that you that you had that in your life. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean I think I was I was nineteen when something happened and someone was like, you know, you could say no. And I was like, What? <laughs> and that sounds dumb, but like I legit hadn't really considered it up until that point. Even then it took several years before I could. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, this is a random connection. Um, but by any chance have you watched the Sabrina on Netflix? Mm-hmm. Do you remember in that one of the things that, that really struck me was in the episode with the spoiler for Sabrina. Okay. Whatever. This is not a, <laughs> I know you didn't walk into this to, to have Sabrina spoiled for you. This is a minor one, but in the, <laughs> In the episode where she's being hazed and the ghosts of the children who had been killed in the hazings um, were helping her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
his, one of her aunts says to the to the ghosts, like, I know what you need. It's what all good children need. And it's just permission. Um, yeah. And to me, to me, that was something that that really struck me as like sometimes when you leave evangelicalism and you receive permission from someone <laughs> like it's just enough for you to sort of grab onto your own um, to grab onto your own will in a way that yeah. that is not made clear to you before. Any- no, I think that's that's a really powerful observation. I think that's legit. Um, getting back to getting back to your experience, though, you've one of the, one of the things that you've talked about is this rife relationship you have with your with your family of origin. Um, and it is we're recording this in the during the holidays, um, but there are plenty of people that that I'm sure relate to that experience of having to make some difficult decisions in regards to their, in regards to their families of origin. Um, How has that sort of impacted you? What, what's, what do you, what sort of, I'm not sure whether to frame it as advice or, or something else (laughs) as far as if someone is, is going through the sorts of things that, that you've had to face, um, what what would you have to say to someone that's in a similar spot? Well, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is directly relating back to what you said is permission. Like, you have permission to take care of yourself. You mm-hmm. have permission to, mm-hmm. you know, to not kill yourself in whatever capacity that looks like in order to maintain a connection that is toxic and terrible even if it doesn't seem like enough Mm -hmm. and i think that that's like there is such a strong societal pull in general to maintain our relationship with our family of origin and particularly our parents um but i think in evangelicalism like with many things there are all these added layers Mm -hmm. of respect your mother and father and um all of these things yeah and like you know that nobody is born being like nobody is owed respect that's not how it works like the fact that your parents had you and the the fact that they may or may not have given you a roof over your head or whatever basic things they did for you is literally what they owed you you don't owe them for that. (laughs) That's not how that works. Um, And I think that it's just, you know, I, I do really think that one of the things I run into a lot is that people are just really on the fence and they don't know. Um, I think when people have kids, it's a lot harder. I see that a lot Um, that they don't want to take their kids from their grandparents. And I don't have an answer to that. I was lucky in that sense um but i do i really believe that that cutting off your that cutting off your family cutting off your parents is an incredibly hard thing to do for a number of reasons 
and that it is the kind of thing that you do because the alternative is worse. Mm. And like, I think a lot, and this isn't really a direct comparison and sometimes I feel bad about thinking it, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Um, you know, that, that poem that someone wrote about, um, about like refugees. I mean, they talk about how like no one would put their kid in a boat unless the water was safer than the land. Um, Mm. it's a really good poem. Mm. Uh, and I think about that a lot because I think there's this idea that you're being selfish, that you're being, I don't know, unkind something. But the reality is that what I see, what I saw with myself, what I've seen with other people who have made that decision is that like, you don't make that decision unless the alternative is much worse. And the people who have never had that experience do not know what that is like Mm -hmm. and cannot understand what it is like to have parents who don't love you or who do love you, but who functionally cannot express that love in a way that is not toxic and devastating. And you do not deserve to have that in your life. You deserve to find something that makes you feel fulfilled and loved and it's going to suck. And I'm sorry, but staying could be much worse. Hmm. That said, if you choose to stay, (laughs) if you choose to stay, I don't think that's a bad decision either. I think, I mean, like at the end of the day, I think that people should be able to do whatever they feel like they can do. Right. Um, And I don't think people should be guilted for any choice that they make, because I think that when you are in a situation where your where your family relationships are complex and difficult, all choices are complex choices and I'm not going to claim to know what the right one is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's an old uh, Douglas Copeland book with with the title, all families are psychotic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, sometimes that, that, uh, that, that title uh, seems apt. (laughs) Uh, Thank thank you for, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that those were such good, insights into really difficult things that, that I'm sure that, uh, that some people, if that's their, if that is their experience and what they have to work through, then, then I'm, I'm glad that they are able to hear, hear you talk about that from someone who has had to make some choices, you know? Um, because that, that's one thing that I feel is the best thing about any XV community that, that has formed over the last couple of years has been this sense that, you know, we're, we're not as alone as we thought we were. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so that's, that's, that's great. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you shared that, even though it's not, uh, not an easy thing to share. Um, what other things are, what other things are you, are, are you working on right now? Um, as far as just other parts of your life that, that, that you, would would like to share about um i know you're in school i know you're working on um on social work and other other aspects of things that that do start to intersect with evangelicalism sort of uh but but you know just sort of addressing the sorts of things that that come with leaving these sorts of environments um is there anything else that you're working on that 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 we haven't talked about that that we could that we could spend a few minutes on as well. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm currently uh, at the University of Washington studying for my master's of social work. Um, like I said, initially when I decided that I was going to go back to school, I was like, I'm going to be a social worker. Um, I did not think, I thought the idea of going past two years in school was crazy. And now I'm, you know, a year and a half into my master's and mm-hmm. planning on a doctorate. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I have the option to be Dr. Sparkle and I don't think that I can turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Um, so, yeah, I, um, but part of, part of what happened as I moved through my undergrad was the realization that for me, um, leaving behind evangelicalism, I, I know there are people who leave evangelicalism and they're like, cool, I'm out of evidence to construct this and, you know, build this whole new life. And that's what I'm going to do. I don't think that'll ever be me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of interest in the way that I was raised and the way that other people were raised. And there's a shocking lack of research and um, resources, uh, as I'm sure many people know, uh, for that. So uh, at some point when I was an undergrad, I was like, well, I'm going to be a therapist and I'm going to focus on on even on uh, religious trauma. Um, that was my initial plan. Mm -hmm. And then I got into grad school and my second quarter, I took a class in macro social work. Um, so like sort of larger level system stuff. I was like, Oh, I see. I don't want to be a therapist at all. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So it's fun about grads. Um, and actually I would probably go crazy if I were, therapist um god bless all the wonderful therapists out there um but uh so now my interests are a lot more wide-ranging and i have yet to figure out how to fit them all into a job um (laughs) research and publish and teach and do training and i'm interested in policy and there's a lot of things but right now i'm working on my thesis um because research is Because one of the things that you have to have to get money for anything is to have uh, research and um, sort of enough proof that something is a problem. And that is severely lacking (laughs) Mm -hmm. when it comes to evangelicalism or really religious trauma in general. There's there's some work done around Catholicism and sexual trauma um, and there's work done around like um, what we would what people frequently recognize as like more emotional cults. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, not much else. Um, mm-hmm. So my, um, one of my goals is to continue doing research throughout my career. So I decided that I was going to start my thesis. Um, I'm working on putting it together now. I'm waiting on permission from the ethics board to, um, start the data collection. Um, but the goal is that it'll be a qualitative study. Um, so I'm going to be doing interviews, uh, with five to 10 people, uh, female people in this particular case, uh, who experience sexual trauma in the church. And I want to talk, I want to talk to them specifically about the impact of, um, evangelical community, um, on 
sexual trauma and like on sort of that secondary trauma type of experience. Um, and partly I decided to do it this way. I've actually never done qualitative research before. The research experience I have has been quantitative. Mm-hmm. Um, but There's I only one way to learn, to... though. It's by doing that. It's true. <laughs> true. And my advisor is amazing and a wonderful qualitative researcher. So that's exciting. Good. That's good. Um, but I also thought it was really important that if this is one of the things that I want to do with my life, um, I want to start with actual voices mm-hmm. from people. That's, that's really important to me. Um, and not just numbers. Uh, so that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and hopefully in the next few months I'll be, um, sending out requests for people who are interested, um, in being my interviewer and being some of my interviews. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, it's been really interesting being in grad school, being an undergrad and talking about the thing that I want to do and the thing that I'm interested in, in my life and like how, you know, people are really interested. Like my teachers are very supportive and are very interested and don't know anything about what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there have definitely been like there isn't anyone who has experience in what I'm researching. I just like my advisor has experience in sexual trauma um, and has done research around that. But when it comes to specifics of like evangelical community, like that, it's a complete mystery to her. She has no, like she's fascinated, but she has no idea what I've done. Yeah. What a, Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. So, and then of course I've been doing like, um, I've been doing, uh, uh, literature review reading, which has been frankly kind of a nightmare, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> it sounds like a literature of, review. <laughs> but most of the people, like, there is not a lot of writing about sexual trauma within the evangelical church at all. Mm-hmm. But most of it is written by evangelicals. Um, Interesting. And it's almost like you—it's almost like you can't trust people to write about their own cults. Um, (laughs) it just doesn't, yeah, uh, the articles are excruciating, um, Mm. and very rarely, well, I mean, functionally never bring up, um, you know, any doctrinal issues that may add to this. They don't, they tend to come from perspectives that I think we're all pretty familiar with of, you know, sin and shame and all of these things. There's like no strengths-based approach whatsoever. And even when you have situations where I feel like there's a couple, there's a couple of researchers where I'm like, I really believe that you are doing the absolute best you can do and that you genuinely do understand trauma, at least to a certain extent, and that you are really trying to figure out how Mm -hmm. to stop what is happening um, in churches. I believe that. But I also see that what you are talking about is like fundamentally like bringing these concepts in on top of evangelical ideas. And I just, I don't think it's possible to teach monogamy and, or to teach, well, to teach monogamy for one, but to teach monogamy only, um, but to teach uh, abstinence until marriage in a non-abusive way. I don't think it's possible mm-hmm. to teach 
you know, obviously many of the LGBTQ um, things that um, evangelicals teach in non-abusive ways. And so they have these basic principles that they consider to be critical and they're trying to move stuff in on top of that and be like, well, if we just move around these top pieces, we can maybe stop this from happening. I'm like, no, like mm-hmm. <laughs> what you're teaching is fundamentally abusive. You can't just move around right. um, a few of the pieces and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something more, more essential to the, so the evangelical sexual ethic that's being taught that, that is problematic at its core. <laughs> exactly. And I, yeah. I haven't found anything talking about that. Interesting. I found one paper that was really interesting about domestic violence and, um, uh, like, and Christian organizations mm. that, uh, that try to teach domestic violence that are primarily are not teach, <laughs> try to cope with domestic violence and help women who have dealt with domestic violence. Um, and, um, they, uh, they have a variety of ways of collecting information on this, but functionally their argument, most of these were run by women. Um, and their argument was that like domestic violence, um, prevention efforts that were run by evangelicals were not the same as domestic violence prevention efforts that were run by not evangelicals, but because they used the same language, there we go with language again. Um, it was Mm -hmm. often not recognized as a different thing and that what it what it actually was was sort of reinforcing the same gender binaries um and the same problematic attitudes and that the women who were running them were frequently sort of using these platforms to slightly expand their accepted leadership roles but were ultimately reinforcing the same problematic things wow um, and that's wow. like the best article I've found, but that's very unusual. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's crazy. But you know, looping back to to language as as a root as a root thing. I mean, using the ways in which evangelicals can use language to obscure, you know, use the same words but have them oh be coded to mean something differently. Um, they they present as the same in the wider world, but are not the same. <laughs> Uh, yeah, within their worker, insular environments. Like as a social worker, I run into this like um, periodically. I work in a youth shelter, um, and periodically we'll have churches that want to help us or offer whatever. And like I'll always look. You know, there's a couple of like more um, progressive churches in our area, but not many. Um, and I'll always look them up. And most of the time, I'm just like, no, we cannot work with these people. And like, <laughs> and, you know, repeatedly, some of my coworkers have been like, well, I mean, like I asked and I asked how they felt about LGBTQ people. And they said that they, they loved LGBTQ people. Are they excited? I'm just like, yeah, no, that's that's not what they mean. I, I know. <laughs> I know it's confusing, but you functionally have to ask them 20 questions and to back them into a corner. Um. Mm-hmm. When they say they love them, they mean they love them enough that they believe God's sending them to hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, once or twice my coworkers thought I was crazy, but then I was proven correct. So at this point, they usually just listen. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. It, it's good to heed advice from someone that has that personal experience, right? 
Well, they do sound crazy, right? Like, yes, well, I know yeah. they said they love them, but actually, no, no, they, they think they're going to hell. Okay, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you're out there doing this, doing this work and, and really pursuing this in, in the way that you are, uh, wanting to examine how, how these things are taught and, and how they impact people in such consequential ways. Um, because I, it's just, it's vital work. Um, and I'm glad that, that you're doing it. (laughs) Um, and yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm getting a little loopy. <laughs> um, so the record, I think, what you're doing is pretty important too. I hope uh, you know that. Oh, thank you. I, I do. I do really appreciate that. Um, where can people find you online? Where can they find your awesome James Dodson threads? Where can they? Uh, where can they? <laughs> if you're writing anywhere else, um, where can they find you online to to keep in touch with you? Because because you're doing great stuff oh thanks um yeah no my uh twitter handle is at sparkle underscore heretic um and all my dobson threads are there the um they're i'm catching them up in moments right now so per book so if you want to go through a whole book's worth of james (laughs) dobson yeah you can do that or you can take them in chunks I would probably recommend. I don't do them all at once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you want to email me or reach out or whatever. My email address is bethanyjsparkle at gmail.com. At gmail. Sorry. We, we dealing with parent shit or. Yeah. Yeah. At gmail.com. If okay. you're dealing with parent shit or whatever this holiday season, hit me up. I'm totally open to talking. Awesome. Bethany, again, thank you for for sharing some of your story with us and uh, thank you for coming on the show and, and for doing what you do. Thank you, Blake.